Well, that is fantastic. I uh, love so much these opportunities we have to dedicate families and our kids and also to share in baptism. So if any uh, other young families here are wanting to uh, have their children dedicated, we do have a little bit of a process in order to make that happen, including a child dedication class. And as Grace whispered to me just as we were sitting there, uh, with the energy that was displayed up here, uh, younger is better, okay? So <laughs> for us, I mean, you guys do it when your timing is right, but uh, it, is, it is wonderful to be able to celebrate that. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Cal. It's my opportunity to say good morning to you. If you're here in person, it is always good. I love the energy when we gather together. And for those who are online, if you're away and you're just unable to be here, then uh, thank you for taking time to join us online. Um, it's my privilege to, to open God's Word with us this morning. Uh, and we are returning to our series in 1 Timothy that we've titled, How Stuff Works. Last week for Family Day, we just took a week to step outside of that. Uh, but we're going to re-enter that this morning. And today our text is from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 to 16. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But before we do, let me just remind us of a couple of the key ideas and themes uh, that, that Paul has been instructing Timothy in the church in Ephesus at so far. Now, the key issue, the, the really the reason for why uh, Paul is writing to Timothy is primarily to address uh, false teachers and false teaching that had come in, uh, that had permeated, that had influenced the church both from outside and from inside. Now, you see, as God's people, we are called to live in a certain way. But the way we are called to live is founded upon the truth of Jesus Christ, the truth of Scripture, and our relationship with God in, in all of that. So, for instance, uh, Tim, uh, Paul points out that we are called to be a, a people of prayer. That when we gather to worship, that, that there's a, a form of orderly worship that we are to in, engage in. And, and there's, conducts, uh, among, uh, there's conduct among us that needs to stand out in contrast to the practices of the world around. Leaders, for instance, we talked about a few weeks ago, that leaders are held to high standards of conduct and character. And a couple of terms we looked at a few weeks ago is that the church is called to really be a true family. The, the Greek word was oikos, which we explored. And it's this idea of being a household that, that you know, we're, we're kind of uh, not just, we're actually even beyond a, a biological family, but we're a spiritual family united in Christ. And then the other word that we looked at was the word ecclesia, which means we've been called out from the world and, and we're called to exercise the authority of Jesus among us and through us. So um, a couple weeks ago, Pastor West reminded us that Paul's writing to Timothy and says, don't let others look down upon you because you are young. Rather, set an example. And, and so Timothy is exhorted then to watch his doctrine, his teaching, but also his life in very careful ways. And so that brings us now to chapter 5. So follow along as I read for us uh, 1 Timothy 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 16 this morning. It's a lengthy passage, so just hang in there as we go through this. Here Paul writes to Timothy, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of, all, uh, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. 
Give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being uh, idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some, in fact, have already turned away to follow Satan. If a woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. Whew. That's, that's, a, that's a passage, isn't it? Now, if you're anything like me, you may be thinking something along the lines of this. Wow. That's a lot of instructions regarding widows. This passage seems very specific to a culture and a time and a setting. Is this passage even relevant for us today? How do I apply this? How do we apply this as a church? How do I apply this in my own life? Is it just a matter of, okay, so we at Ebenezer, we've set up our widow's helpline, and if you are over 60, press 1. And if you have done these things, you can press two and the whole tree comes down and finally, yeah. no, that's, I don't think that's what we're talking about here. See, these thoughts and these questions certainly entered my mind when I began reading over this passage several weeks ago in preparation for speaking today. However, as I begun to, to kind of dig a little bit deeper, um, I found this passage incredibly relevant and even, even I would say necessary for us today. As we will see over the next few weeks, Paul is going to address three groupings of people within the church. We're going to talk about uh, widows today. And then next week, we're talking about elders. And by elders, it means not the older. It means the elders, those who have been called and gifted by God to, to, to lead the church. And then we're going to talk about slaves. However, Paul spends a significant amount of time on this topic of widows compared to those other, true, uh, other, those other two groups. It's almost 14 or so verses here versus just a couple of verses in those other sections. Now, in order to figure out what it is that, that, that Paul's getting at, not just for, for their time, but what does that mean for us today? How do we bring that truth into, into our world today? I think it is helpful to remind ourselves what kind of, uh, what, what the, Paul's current train of thought is. Like, where has he been going so far, and how has he arrived where we are today? Now, remember, if we go back just a, a chapter, Paul says in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, he challenges Timothy with the, these words. He says, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. So talking about some of these false teachers, false doctrines that have begun to infiltrate the church. He says, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life, where we're living today, and the life to come. 
he then continues to remind Timothy that even though he is, you know, younger, um, he can and he should set an example. An example of what? An example of godliness. An example of godly living. And you see, while godliness begins on the inside as the Holy Spirit transforms us, it happens first in our, in our beliefs and our character and our attitudes. True godliness reveals itself on the outside, in our words and in our actions, how we live in, a, in every day, uh, day to day. And this is what really sets the church apart from the rest of the world. This is how stuff works, to go back to kind of our, our theme of this passage, in both how God desires his people to live and then how God draws others to him. Now, in this section, I believe what Paul is doing, he's giving us uh, of areas in which godliness is actually displayed. This is how godliness looks in these various situations that he's going to address. And I think he gives us three areas in our passage this morning of how godliness is lived out. The first one is an overriding principle that will cover the entire section of both widows, uh, elders, and slaves. And then there's two other examples of godliness I want to draw to your attention, specifically as it relates to widows. So let's take a look. First, godliness is displayed when we treat each other as true family. When we treat each other as true family. Paul opens chapter 5 by telling us we need to treat older men as fathers and younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters. Now, Paul begins by telling Timothy he should not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Now here specifically, uh, Paul is talking likely about these older men who were down and critical of Timothy because of his relatively young age. I can kind of hear the comments that are being said. Things like, well, Timothy, what does he know? He doesn't have enough life experience to lead a church like we have in Ephesus. Uh, you're too green behind the ears. You know, you're too inexperienced in life to lead. And he was receiving this criticism. And so Paul's telling Timothy not only to, to not, not, not be intimidated because you're young, not only to set an example, but he says when those criticisms come from older men, don't rebuke them. Exhort him as if you were your father. Now, there's a significant difference between rebuking and exhorting. To rebuke is um, it's kind of like to show that strong disapproval. It's almost like biting back when someone kind of comes at you. Uh, it's a denunciation. Uh, it could even, again, get to be critical. Uh, and sometimes there's a fine line between that and, and, and being mean-spirited when it comes to some, some of the things that we can rebuke others for. And Paul adds the adverb harshly, or in other, uh, in other translations, sharply. You see, most of the time when the word rebuke is used, and, and it's used in a proper way, it's, it's often to address the issues of false doctrine. So when false doctrine comes, yes, we are to rebuke those things. We are to speak clearly, and, and even in some ways critically, to make sure that that doesn't enter in. But in a relational setting, when we treat each other as family, we are called to not rebuke, the older men, even when they come critically against us, rather we are to exhort them. Because older men are part of the church, part of the family, they are not to be rebuked in this harsh and sharp way. Rather, they are called to be exhorted. Exhort is really to uh, come alongside, to comfort, to encourage. It's interesting that the Greek word for exhort here is the word parakaleo which has similar roots to parakletos, or parakletos, which really is reference to the Holy Spirit. 
When we think about how the Holy Spirit comes alongside us in our lives, when it comforts and encourages us, when it, when it gently uh, corrects us and sometimes even disciplines us, that's the same idea of what it means to exhort the older men. Older men are to be treated as fathers. Older women are to be treated as mothers. Now, Paul doesn't go into detail there because there may not have been a direct application for that. But the, the key principle is this. Those who are older needed to be treated as fathers and mothers. Western society doesn't really treat the elderly with respect, does it? I, I know that in other cultures, including Eastern and Middle Eastern cultures, there's a, there's a higher level of respect for those who are older. But here in North America, I, I would suggest that it's less so. Let me put a scenario in your mind, and you review this and tell me how you might respond, okay? So you're driving along Circle Drive, and the speed limit, of course, is 90, which means you're doing probably about 103. And uh, as you're driving, you come upon a car that is either driving much too slow or driving a bit erratically. So the first chance you get, you, you, you come out of the la uh, your lane, you go past them, maybe with a little bit of aggressiveness just to show this other driver that what they're doing is, not, is irritating you. And as you pass, you look into that vehicle and you see that it's an elderly driver. What do you do? See if you fall into the Cal camp in any of these. Okay, I'll give you three options of how you might respond. And you tell me. Do you roll your eyes? Leave out a big sigh. Even though they can't see or hear you, you still do it thinking it might mean something. It's like yelling at the TV set, right? But, you know, you kind of roll your eyes. Oh, whatever. Or do you, are you the hand gesture person? Are you the look inside and go? Or do you do the combination and add in the sarcastic or critical word? Are you the, do you even know how to drive, buddy? Who no, I won't ask for a confession on that, but. Or, or how about put yourself in this situation? You're standing in line at the grocery store or a restaurant waiting to pay your bill. And the person in front of you is an elderly person who's struggling to find the right change to pay their bill or can't figure out how to tap or to use their debit or their credit card. And inside, you're a little bit irritated, let's say. You're, you're bugged. Come on, just change. Let's go. Have you not seen change before? Well, actually, young people, maybe you don't even know what change is. But, uh, but, you know, like, are you irritated? Or it's like, you know, it's a debit card. We've had these things forever. Like, just let's go. How about this? What if you're stuck behind that slow-moving vehicle and you aggressively pass to make your point, and just as you're about to try to make eye contact with that driver, you look inside and you, and you see it's your dad or your grandmother. Would you act the same way? What if you're in that restaurant or in that cashier line and the person's struggling and it's a person behind you that's saying, come on, hurry up, buddy. Have you never seen change before? And it happens to be your grandfather or your father that's struggling. Will you not turn to that person and just kind of, hey, slow down. It's okay. Do we not react differently when we see others as family? I think we do. I won't spend a lot of time on this. But Paul also calls us to treat younger men as brothers and younger women as sisters. Again, in, in a family context. But Paul adds this little phrase when it comes to women. 
he says, with absolute purity. You know, even though this is certainly not only an issue from men to women or male to female, the tendency is that men can look at women and younger women with, well, less than innocent and pure thoughts or motives. Uh, of course, it does happen the other way around. I get that. I'm not trying to pigeonhole this. But the point is, we need to see younger men as brothers in Christ and younger women as sisters in Christ. Not, not as objects to be desired or lusted over. Not as someone to be owned or used for our pleasures and for our satisfaction. We need to treat others with honor and respect. And we do that when we see them as family. You know, I've been in a situation quite recently, or that has amped up most recently. And I have to confess that I haven't treated the other party as a brother or sister or, or a family member. Then instead of seeing them as family, I've seen them as an antagonist or an adversary. And it's shaped and clouded how I act and what I do and my attitude and mutterings under my breath. And it's not good. Certainly not good for me. Certainly not good for that relationship. We need to treat each other as, we were, as though we were family. Because, in fact, we are. Maybe not biological family. We trace back to Adam, so I suppose in a sense we are. But certainly a spiritual family. Godliness is displayed when we treat each other as, as true family. So that's where we need to start. Next, Paul takes this huge amount of time to discuss widows. And the context and content of what Paul says indicates that he's referring to widows within the family of faith. Now, if you look through Scripture, it is clear that widows have a, have a tremendous significance in, in God's story. For instance, there's the story of the widow and the prophet Elisha in 2 Kings 4, where God, through the instructions of Elisha, miraculously provides oil for a widow so she can sell it so she wouldn't have to give up her sons to slavery. This widow had, when her husband passed, uh, who was a prophet actually, um, owed money. And so that debt was carried to the widow. And, and the creditors were coming and they were saying, well, if you don't have money to give us, we're going to take your sons and use them as slaves or sell them into slavery to pay your debt. And she didn't know what to do. And, and so God provides her, uh, her through Elisha with oil to sell, an endless supply of oil, in fact, for, that filled all the jars of her household and her neighbors. And she had more than enough to not only pay the debt, but then to continue living a, a relatively comfortable life. There's a story of the widow of Zarephath and the prophet Elijah and how God miraculously provided for her basic needs. And if you know that story, she came to a point where she had literally nothing left but a little bit of flour and oil. And she said, you know what? We're going to make this into a, a small loaf of bread, and this is what we're going to eat. And then basically we're going to die. We have nothing else. And Elijah comes to her and, and asks her, can you give me that food? And she, in obedience, gives that little bit of oil and flour to Elijah. And then all of a sudden, it never ran out. The flour pot never emptied. The oil jar was never empty. God provided for her. But more than just God providing for widows, God holds accountable those who don't care for or those who take advantage of widows. As part of the law Moses received from God on Mount Sinai, God says this in Exodus 22. He says, Do not take advantage of a widow or orphan, 
If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. Those are very stern words. God also says in Isaiah 1 verse 17, Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. What is right? Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Excuse me, And plead the case of the widow. And if we look to the New Testament, we see in Acts chapter 6 that actually the first kind of organized ministry of the church was to take care of the widows or to, to settle the dispute that was happening because they needed to take care of the widows. Widows are deeply ingrained into the fabric of God's story. Now, why? I think the answer is pretty simple. God's heart is for widows. And he has a heart for them because they were the most vulnerable in society. They were the most vulnerable in society. You see, widows are not just defined by those who lost their husbands. Yes, technically that may be true. But with that loss of husbands came a whole uh, a reef of other things that have deeply affected them. Not just their life and, and their living, but actually who they were. In losing their husbands, yes, they lost the financial support. Women in general were not afforded the opportunities that the women have today. It's not like they had a choice of what school they wanted to go to or um, what uh, job that they wanted to choose. They didn't have unions to make sure that they had their health benefits and their, their minimum uh, pay and so on and so forth. When their husbands died, and remember that some of these husbands died because of the, their faith. like They would have been persecuted to the point of death because of this newfound faith. And so it was incumbent upon the church then to look after these widows. But when their husbands died, they lost, yes, their, that means of financial support. But they also lost their social networks. They also lost their legal standing. And they basically had no rights as even human beings. If they carried the debt of their husbands, they were often taken advantage of because they owed money to others and they, couldn't, they had no means of paying it back. And so creditors would take advantage of that. And often widows, in their desperation, ended up resorting to even immoral and unethical methods just simply to survive and to care for any children that they may have. You see, godliness is displayed when we care for our most vulnerable. When we care for our most vulnerable. Now, we don't have time to go into the details of how Paul instructs Timothy in the church at Ephesus on how to care for the widows. But a few parts of this plan include discerning whether or not they are truly in need. Immediate families are to take on the responsibility first. And then depending on if and how those things were met, the church then comes alongside to help and to provide. But let's remember, though, that we're not just talking about financial support. Widows and the vulnerable needed finances, yes, but they also needed community and fellowship. They needed simple friendship. They, they needed a way to restore their dignity and their value that the rest of the world would have robbed them of. They needed support and encouragement in their spiritual journeys. And the church needs to take responsibility for caring for the most vulnerable. Now, I don't believe that Paul is advocating that the church needs to um, you know, morph into some type of social assistance agency. 
In fact, many of the social assistance agencies today began as ministries out of the church. But the way they've evolved, some would argue, is, is you know, maybe doing as much harm as good. And that's arguable, but, you know, I'll leave it out there for you to think about. But, but here's the point I'm trying to make is true godliness is displayed when we, the church, care for our most vulnerable. A common passage in, dis- in discussing the centrality of care for widows and orphans is found in James 1.26 which says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Now, I want to make a quick note here. Often when we talk about Christianity or being a Christ follower, we talk about it and we say, no, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. And that's true. But then why does James use the language of religion here when he's talking about what true religion looks like? I, I think it's, it's actually quite simple. But uh, our faith and our relationship with Jesus must lead to action. It has to. It has to play itself in how we live. Just before this passage, James says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. And then in chapter 2, James writes, What good is it, my brother, if a man claims to have faith but no deeds? You show me faith without deeds, I will show you my faith by what I do. So faith, our relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that faith element, always leads to action or religion. Even remember what Jesus says. He says, if you love me, right, if you have that relationship with me, if you love me, then what? Obey my commands action or religion, right? If you love me, obey my commands. What did he ask Peter three times? He said, Peter, do you love me? Peter would affirm, yes, I do. I have that relationship with you. Then Jesus says, feed my sheep. Action or religion, if you want to use that word. The difference in Christ with, with Jesus and Christianity and Christ followers that It always begins with our relationship with Jesus. Our relationship, our love for Jesus, then leads us to religion or action. Whereas every other belief system in the world says, you know what? I do first because when I do, I can gain a relationship. So it's an earned relationship, which we know is impossible. Right? Relationship leads to religion and not the other way around. Back to James, though. After James tells us that true religion is to care for the widows and orphans, so true religion that is pleasing to God is this, to look after the widows and the orphans. What does he go, where does he go next? He right away in the next chapter says, don't show favoritism. And he uses the example of a rich man coming into a church, and everyone is just fawning over this guy. He comes in, probably a fancy car. He's nicely dressed, jewelry. Maybe even people notice that, you know, he's got a, you know, a ton of money he's going to put in the offering plate. And we love to fawn over and care for and reach out to those people because in our minds we're thinking, you know what? If he becomes a member of our church, bam, we can bump up the budget. Salary raises for all the staff and another new addition to our building. 
or we sit beside him because, you know what, I need to know this guy because I can get connected then in my career or in my relationship. I can be made to feel important if I'm friends with this guy. And so we fawn over these people that come in. And James says, no, 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 don't show favoritism. It's easy to care for those that we think we can gain something of, out of. But true godliness is when we care for those in which we can get nothing from. That it's of no real benefit to us in, in that definition of benefit. I would suggest that there's many benefits, but, but not necessarily the ones that we think of. We think of what benefits us. You see, when we care for the most vulnerable, we are caring for the ones who maybe will never return anything to us. They'll never help us increase the budget. They'll never pay for an expansion. They'll never improve our standing. They'll never make the right connections for us in our job or in our workplace and the areas that we want to be successful. But Jesus says this, take care of the vulnerable. Godliness is displayed when we care for those who are most vulnerable. And finally, and I had a hard time trying to figure out how to express this last point. So just bear with me as we kind of work through it. But I think we need to take a closer look both at the context and the content of what Paul writes here to Timothy regarding widows. Notice as we went through our list that there's kind of these, all these conditions, right, so to speak, for which widows should be helped. It's not a, a blanket statement like James just made here that I read in James 1.26, which is care for the widows and the orphans. But he kind of goes through and he, he, he lists a bunch of things. So first is, like he says it two or actually three times, I think he says, you know, the widows who are in need. So implying that there are probably widows who were not so much in need. Uh, the care for widows is first to be with their immediate family. And Paul speaks sternly to families who don't care for the widows or don't care for those in their families who are vulnerable. He says in verse 8, If anyone does not provide for its relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Again, strong, strong words. And then he adds kind of more conditions. It's kind of like I mentioned, that, that, uh, that telephone tree, right, to know whether you can get to the end and whether or not you actually uh, are, 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 can, should apply. And he says, okay, if you're over the age of 60, then you should be put on the list of help. But you also need to have sound character and integrity. Now, younger widows, no, you don't, you don't count. You, you should remarry, and actually I'm encouraging you to remarry. Again, imagine if we had a program like this set up, and you had to go through reams and reams of application just to say, you know what, I need some help this month, you know, I'm running short. It doesn't seem quite right. Why was Paul being so stringent? Why not just instruct the church to help and care for all widows? Well, there's, I think, two potential possible reasons why Paul wrote these words to the church in Ephesus, and it has to do with speculating a bit on, on what might have been happening. The first idea is that perhaps there were just so many widows in Ephesus that needed help that Paul was telling Timothy, okay, you've got thousands of widows. We need to whittle this list down. We can't certainly provide for them all. And so here's how we should differentiate and prioritize who should get help. So some of the instructions might fit that category. Widows over 60 should be on the priority list for help. Well, widows over 60 had little to no chance of remarrying so I guess, rightfully, they should be helped. So now, okay, now for all the widows, those are over 60. We've kind of narrowed it down a little bit more. Younger widows were more likely to remarry, and they were actually encouraged to do so. So they're good. That's another standard. We can kind of whittle that down a little bit more. I, I'm not sure 
That's the primary reason why Paul wrote these words. I think it's a second reason, which is this. Likely in Ephesus, there were widows, mostly younger widows, and widows who probably didn't really need the church's help, but were taking advantage of the church's generosity. See, they were asking the church for help. I'm a widow. I've lost my husband. I need some help. But they were, and they were taking that help, but then turning around and engaging in inappropriate and even immoral relationships. They were gossiping, damaging the reputation of the church. And so Paul instructs Timothy to prioritize and even limit support for which widows then? Well, in verses 3 and 5, he says widows who are really in need. Continuing in verse 5, Paul says that the widow who is really in need and have left all, uh, all put her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. Then in verse 9, there's more criteria to look for. The widow must have been faithful to her husband, known for her good deeds, particularly in the area of how she raised her children, showing hospitality and serving others and helping others who are in need and in trouble. And this is contrasted with the, verse, uh, with the passage in verses 11 to 13, which includes character issues like those who have prioritized the fulfillment of their spiritual desires, uh, those who are idle, not doing anything, They're busybodies, they just do things to waste time, of, of little profit. Um, those who talk nonsense, and certainly those who may have been speaking negatively about the church are speaking, oh, I pulled one over on the church, I got more money from them, so on and so forth. Paul is instructing Timothy to make priority those widows who are living and pursuing godliness despite their challenging circumstances. You see, godliness is displayed when we trust and pursue God in all of our circumstance. You know around Christmas time when one of the common gifts that we might give or receive is that box of those uh, cream-filled chocolates? How many of you guys get those over Christmas? How many of you buy them? Okay, not many buy them, but I, I know it's a, it's a common gift that, that we receive. And uh, if you're like me or if your family's anything like me, there are certain uh, flavors of cream that we just don't like. Okay, now for us, it's the orange cream filled ones. Anyone can resonate with me there? Yeah, how many of you like the orange cream ones? Okay, you're getting all of ours, okay? Because uh, we have probably scads and scads of them. Uh, we don't like the orange cream filled ones that no one touches. And, and so we, we take, uh, you know, usually those boxes come with a little, I call it a menu card, right? And it shows ba either by the shape or the design what cream is in there. And inevitably, the orange ones are the ones that are, are left behind. Well, what happens if you lose that card? Yeah, yeah. I see Grace already kind of knowing where I'm going with this, okay? What happens if you lose that card? What do you do if you don't want the orange cream? I know sometimes you might bite into it, and if it is, you just kind of put it back. <laughs> a, a, a more hygienic way maybe is to take a knife and to cut it open, peek inside, and then, you know, people can see, oh, it's a clean cut. No one put their face in this, and I'll just leave it there. Um, but, you know, the other way to do it is that either you, you know, you squeeze it, right? And when you squeeze it, what's inside kind of comes out. And when you squeeze it, you see what's inside. You know, I think we all go through seasons and circumstances in life that squeeze us. And it's when we're squeezed 
what's really inside comes out, doesn't it? You see, too often when we're faced with challenges and trials and difficulties and even tragedies in life, like those widows go through, our human tendency is to react and respond in ways that reveal what's inside. And too often, I think, especially in our world today, we fall to kind of two camps. We fall to victimization or we fall to entitlement. You see, it's someone else's fault. Maybe even God's fault. And because it's someone else's fault, I'm entitled to some kind of compensation. And in some cases, that might be true. But godliness, true godliness means we actually turn away from that mentality. And we say, I'm going to trust you, God, and I'm going to allow you to sort these things out. And I'm going to continue to grow and know you. So that what's inside, when I'm squeezed, whatever comes out is pleasing to you and helpful for others. You see, godliness is displayed when we trust and pursue God in all of our circumstances, both good and bad. Uh, Jeremy, I see your worship team is ready to go. I want you guys to come on up and get ready for our closing song. But let me just make a couple of comments as we wrap things up here. So here we have a passage addressing lengthy methods of how do we deal with widows. And what is our takeaway this morning then? First, we need to relate to each other as family. Plain and simple. We need to see each other as family. We need to honor each other as family. We need to respect each other as family. And it goes beyond just our attitude. We don't just look at each other once in a while and say, oh, yeah, you're part of my family. It needs to define how we act, how we prioritize, you know, the things we choose to do and the things we choose not to do. We can't be a family if we only see each other once a week and for an hour, hour and a half. And even in a setting like this, we have very little interaction with each other. And in fact, I'm not even talking about a large setting like this where there's, what, 350, 400 people in this room. We can't be a family of that many. Our, my family on my in-laws' side, when we get together, I think, what are we now, Grace? We're like 60-some, at least. And if you're wondering why I'm asking Grace, Grace and I is actually my sister-in-law, so I'm not just looking because she knows facts about me. Um, but, you know, like, it's, it's even difficult when we get together that we actually even spend any time with each other. So I'm talking about we, we must get ourselves into these smaller communities, and here we call them life groups, but smaller communities actually function and work and treat each other as family. Families that, that meet together regularly, not just once in a while for a Bible study, but, but beyond that. Uh, we need to interact. We need to spend time together. We need to interact with each other. We need to eat meals together. We, when we have conversations, it has to be more than just about the weather or our favorite or our least favorite sports team. We need to be able to, to talk to each other about the deep things in life, about challenging each other spiritually. And you know what other things the families do? They discipline one another. And we need to have enough relational capital with one another that when we're confronted with something, we actually trust the person to tell us and say, you know what, I messed up. That's what families do. So the first question I have is, do we actually not only see each other in a theoretical way, but actually live out the reality that we are family? Second, we must actively care for the most vulnerable among us. In fact, I would suggest that this is what the world is looking for when it looks to define who we are as a church. How do we treat those who are most vulnerable among us? 
And while we might give money to a benevolent fund or other avenues of provision, and these are good. I'm not trying to say we, we don't need to do that. But maybe the next step is for us to be more personal in how we care for and take care of those who are vulnerable. Ask yourself, ask your immediate nuclear family, ask your small group, your life group, who are the most vulnerable among us? Who in our neighborhoods have, has an immediate need? Who in our schools? You know, you know, it's easy to try to be friends with the popular kid because of what we get out of it, but what, a, what about the kid who's shunned, who sits alone at lunchtime and doesn't seem to have any friends? We get nothing out of that, but how we are, who we are as believers is defined by how we treat that person. We need to care for those. Who's lost a job in your neighborhood? Who has other financial needs? Who is just simply feeling lonely, cast out? Who needs dignity, recognition, and love? Those are the most vulnerable. And you know what? I don't think it takes much to recognize and to acknowledge who those are. We're broken, but we know that there's lots of brokenness around us. Here's what you can do. Spend 10 minutes with a Vitali or with a Shadi. And they will tell you story after story after story of need, vulnerability. I can't even imagine what it's like for the thousands of Ukrainian uh, citizens who've had to leave everything in the midst of a war-torn country and try to start life again here in Canada. And is it just financial? Can you buy it? Yeah, you can. But you know what they need more than that? They need friendship. They need a way to connect with other kids if they're in high school, adults with other adults in, in neighborhoods and communities, and so on and so forth. Ask Shadi the same thing. They will give you many opportunities. We did our Christmas food hampers and our blessing tree over the Christmas season last year. And one of my prayers and hopes for this was not only would we help as a church family with some practical needs, but we'd actually begin to build relationship and relationship capital with those who are in need. That we would actually invest relationally with them. You don't need specific projects to do that. So ask yourself, how are you? How is your family? How is your life group or smaller community actively caring for the most vulnerable? Because that's what's going to define us and who we are as a church. And third, are you pursuing godliness in all your circumstances, especially in your most challenging circumstances? This one hit hard for me. As many of you are aware, and even if you're not aware, I'm, I'm happy to share a little bit with you, but these last couple of years have been perhaps some of the most challenging and difficult that I've had in my life, personally, ministry, and in every way. And while there's still a lot I have to sort through, it just recently dawned on me and came to me recently that for too long, I was playing the victim and the entitlement card. That even when I admitted where I needed to grow, I still blamed others for my attitude and my actions. That it was someone else's fault. And because it was someone else's fault, they owed me this, or they should stop doing this, or stop doing that. But finally... I realized that path wasn't moving me toward godliness. Quite the opposite. And so I began to pursue godliness in my own life and focus on my own walk and my own relationship and my own intimacy with him. And you know what? It's working. 
It's begun a change of my thoughts and my actions and my attitudes regarding all the circumstances that I still find myself in. I'm not through it. I've got a long way to go. But I sure like the path I'm on now much better than the path I was on. You see, true godliness is always, always lived out. And Paul reminds us through this weird passage on widows that godliness is displayed when we treat each other as true family. And godliness is displayed when we care for our most vulnerable. And godliness is displayed when we pursue godliness in all of our circumstances. So my simple closing prayer is this. May God give us the willingness and the strength and the courage and the power to do so. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how it enlightens our minds to who you are and who we are. And reminds us that we are a work in progress, individually, as families, and as a church family. But Father, I pray that through this little teaching here on the treatment of widows, we would recognize that your heart is for each and every one of us. And that we would draw near to you in godliness, both in character and in the ways we live. And Father, that all of this would be done through the only way it can be done, through the strength of your Holy Spirit and the transforming power of your word and of that spirit. And that, Father, as we do so, we will be a people that, is, that you are pleased with and that you can use to bring glory to your name and growth to your kingdom. Father, give us the strength and courage to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll invite you to stand as we sing our last song. And just a reminder that we set aside time to uh, pray for one another to live out this whole family thing that our passage spoke to this morning. So if you come this morning and there are, uh, there's a burden you're carrying or a need in your heart or even on behalf of someone else, if you feel that you want to share that and, and pray uh, with others, there will be uh, leaders up front here who'd be happy to pray with you. And again, if you feel you, you need to move around and just put your hand on somebody and say, hey, you know what, I'm praying for you. We're a family. I'm not only going to call you a family, I'm going to treat you as a family member. This is what we do. And so as Jeremy and the team leads us in a closing song, let's, let's, a small way, put into practice what it means to be family. Jeremy. Amen. What a great song just to close with as we consider where we go as we move forward. Please remain standing to receive the benediction. Paul writes in Romans 15, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Again, thank you for those who are online who've joined us. Uh, don't be in a rush to go. Let's uh, spend some time together as, as family. And as we go into this week, let's interact and treat each other truly as family. And we trust we do so for God's glory and God's purposes. Have a great week.